Uh, I'm in the Division of Public Programs, and I'm a program officer there. I've been there about seven years, but I'm going to use a few minutes to give you an overview of who we are and what we're doing in terms of funding digital and what's sort of new and exciting at NEH these days. Uh, thanks very much to the center and also to Frank, Peter, and Maurice for uh, having me, and thanks to all of you. Um, one of the reasons that I like to come to a meeting like this is to learn about what's going on. I've just seen lots of great stuff, and, uh, and thank you. As Richard suggested in the last session, uh, we really are actively trying to figure out what's going on in digital humanities and where should our money go. How can we help you produce the best quality humanities projects? How can we help you distribute them? How can we help you archive them? How do we use new technology tools to educate the public? And when I say educate, I mean broadly both in and out of school, in history, literature, philosophy, the study of art, and the study of culture. Sort of what can we do to make your job easier? Uh, the NEH, as some of you may know, is a federal government agency, and our annual budget is about $3 billion. No, it's about $141 million. <laughs> I wish it were $3 billion. Um, other agencies get that much. We get about $141 million, which I used to think sounded like a lot, but the more I see how much some of you may be working on projects that cost more than $141 million, but we do our best to stretch our money and to make our money go as far as it can, especially in conjunction with other funders, partnerships, et cetera, and I think you'll be hearing more about that a little bit later. Uh, one of the things that we've rolled out in the last year is the Digital Humanities Initiative. Now, NEH has been funding digital projects for a long time, but we're really focusing on that now and really trying to figure out how do we, again, help you all position yourselves in the coming digital world as technologies are converging and how do we best use technology to serve the public. Uh, there's a website. The URL is up there. Uh, that's devoted to the Digital Humanities Initiative. And one of the first things that I'd like to suggest you do, if you're at all interested in this, is uh, there's a link, join the DHI update listserv to the left. I'm not used to doing this with the computers and this and that, but it's all the way to the left, that link. Uh, we have a newsletter. It tells you what's going on in terms of funding, uh, what some of the initiatives are. And again, you might want to subscribe to that. Uh, we're also, we've also started to hold a series of meetings at the NEH with people who are doing interesting digital work. And it wouldn't surprise me if one day a government agent knocked on one of your doors or all of your doors and asked you to come to Washington, or at least you got an email or something asking you to come to Washington. Uh, we've had two such meetings, one focused on digital humanities centers, and the other uh, brought some scholars in who were doing interesting work in digital humanities. And these were pretty informal discussions, again, to try to get a sense of the state of the field. Um, and again, program officers do that. Uh, my main responsibility is in the Division of Public Programs. And I'll talk about that division in a minute, but I do a lot with documentary film, and I have for the last several years. I'm also on a subcommittee that's doing a lot of the research for the Digital Humanities Initiative. Um, and it's a Digital Humanities Initiative that has been doing the research, bringing people over. Uh, one of the first exclusively digital humanities projects that we have are uh, the startup grants, which you can find a little bit about them on the website. And we deliberately use the term startup grant to evoke a startup company, a YouTube, a Google. Now, these are $30,000 grants. They're modest grants, but the deliverables by NEH standards are also pretty modest. The focus is on technology, 
as much as it is the humanities. And we want really great ideas. If, and I've heard a lot of them even at this conference. If you have a way to adapt something that you see in the commercial world to something that could educate people in the humanities, go for a startup grant. We're not asking you to build a massive website, portal, whatever. We're asking you to start doing that to see if something is feasible, which again is a little bit unusual at least for NEH and for a lot of funders, we're funding ideas and feasibility and <clears throat> seed money to move a project forward for innovative ideas. Uh, we just made the first set of awards under the DHI startup grants. And uh, it really ranged across the types of things that NEH does. There was some funding for digitization of archives, <coughs> podcasting, 3D reconstructions of ancient Greek monuments, gaming, um, ways of making archiving, making something open source. Um, even some, again, some of the ideas that I've heard, Metavid could be an example of something that's out there. Wow, it would be great if we could do X. And we're hoping to have at some point finish up grants. It's probably not gonna be called that, but something down the road, if we're putting the seed money in now, we'd love to be able to come in down the road and give you more money to actually make something happen. Uh, to actually follow up on the uh, idea from the startup grant. Um, we also have a partnership with our colleagues at IMLS called Advancing Knowledge, and this is also brand new. Uh, so I don't have any examples of what we're gonna fund, but we hope to partner with IMLS to fund innovative collaborations among libraries, <laughs> museums, archives, universities in doing digital projects. And again, the awards will probably be announced month are we in May? Possibly late July, I would think, for that. You can get back to me on that. We only have a few times a year when we make grants, and July is the next time. But if you're at all interested, if you're working in an archive or a museum, uh, that's something that you might want to consider. And I'm not positive if we're going to have that again in the future, but there's a very good possibility that we will. In addition, the NEH works according to divisions. We have several divisions, and the divisions are sort of organized as far as the end product and the field that you're working in. If you're doing something for primarily an education audience, you could apply to the education division. Public audiences go to public programs. Preservation and access, if you're preserving and making uh, material accessible, uh, would go to that division. Archives, generally, libraries, generally, not exclusively. We have a research division that funds scholarly projects. Child excuse me, challenge grants for big institutional grants. So within those divisions, we're all rolling out programs, and we're also thinking about ways of collaborating, because especially in the digital world, the walls between, say, an education project and a public program are collapsing. Uh, we funded a project uh, called the Time Warp Trio, where we funded the curriculum out of the education division, the TV program for kids out of the public programs, and we're looking at ways of making it easier for applicants to sort of one-stop shop, if that's a verb, come to the NEH, fill out one application, and kind of get all of that funded in a bigger project. And um, with any bureaucracy, it's hard to bring walls down a little bit, but that's what we're trying to do. But I'd like to run through each division really quickly and give you a sense of what's new and exciting in terms of the digital world. And then um, afterwards, I'd be happy to take questions towards the end of the panel. Uh, the research division funds collaborative research projects and scholarly projects. Uh, some things that they fund that include databases where um, especially social historians will use databases, use computer software to sort data. 
uh, do research based on that. Uh, scholarly publications that might be online, scholarly editions, George Washington's papers, Thomas Jefferson's papers, annotated online. They have a new program called Digital uh, Humanities Fellowships, which are intended, again, very broadly to support scholars who are di doing digital work. And it's broad because we want to see what we get. We'll put the money out there and we want to see what happens. And this is the first round for the Digital Humanities Fellowship. So I don't have any examples of what we funded under that because we haven't funded anything yet. Uh, the Education Division, um, have some of you received any H grants or applied? I'm just trying to get a sense. Okay. Some are a good number of you familiar with NEH, just so I have. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I'll do what I can later now. Um, the education division might be of interest to a lot of you. Uh, they have teaching and learning resource grants to develop curricula, including online curricula, uh, digital curricula, primary materials for instructors, study guides. Uh, there's a website that's hosted by NEH called Excitement that has lots of uh, good resources for instructors. It's sort of a guide to other websites. And the education division is doing something that you could apply for called Digital Humanities uh, Workshops, where they want to train educators in how to best use digital uh, technology in the classroom. Now, you might want to call them. We get sort of specialized. I'm in public programs, not education, so I'm not sure exactly how that works. You may be able to apply to conduct a workshop. You may be able to apply to participate in a workshop. That's how they usually work. So if you're at all interested in, in doing that, you might want to contact Division of Education. Uh, preservation and Access does a lot with scholarly tools for archiving, uh, figuring out best practices for digital, online encyclopedias, digitization projects, some of what we've been talking about today. Um, the particular grant programs that you might want to look at are the research and development grants, and the reference materials grants. And some of this is sort of on the left margin, just so you know. And if, uh, if I'm zipping through this too quickly, just grab me afterwards. Um, one of the more prominent projects out of preservation and access is the National Digital Newspaper Program, NDNP, which we're doing in cooperation with Library of Congress. And it's a massive project to try to digitize and make searchable all of America's newspapers historically. And I think that they just unrolled either a beta version or the actual version. Um, we also have a division of challenge grants, which again supports institutional uh, projects. Uh, there's a new program there, National Humanities Challenge Grants, to help humanities centers get going. And my division is the division of public programs. We support museum exhibitions, including online exhibitions. We support television projects. Uh, we supported a couple that were discussed uh, over this conference. We Shall Remain, which Margaret Drain from WGBH talked about yesterday, Native American history. Um, the Detroit, Michigan State slash Detroit Project, uh, America's Black Journal, we put some money into that, making those programs online. And a variety, a lot of times when there's a companion website to a TV program, we've put money into that. Sometimes this is standalone digital projects, sometimes in conjunction with the funding of the TV program. We also support standalone <coughs> digital projects that are intended for public audiences through the Division of Public Programs. 
We have different levels of funding, development funding, which could be $30,000, $60,000, up to what we call implementation or production funding, which could be up to $800,000. Um, so that's the sort of quick and dirty. This website also has examples of projects that we have funded towards the bottom. And there are lots more for each division. So you can see there are NEH-funded projects. And you're welcome off to this link to check those out to give you a sense of what we're looking for. And uh, let me give you my email address and my phone number in case you have any questions about all, any or all of this. Again, the name David Weinstein. My email is dweinstein, my first initial and last name, at neh.gov. And my direct line is 202 606 8308. Why do I give you my direct line? Because I like talking to people. We have a beautiful <laughs> office. We're in this wonderful historic building, if anybody has ever been there, the 19th century old post office building. And we have the most drab cubicles in the world. So I like outside contact, but please call me. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Dan Lucash. I'm a senior program officer with, oh, there's the ready to go, with the Institute of Museum and Library Services. Uh, I'm glad to be here. A couple notes I made before I get into my presentation, just listening to the projects, listening to some of the projects and the activities and the themes that people were talking about. We, I think it ties in very well with many of the activities that we do uh, at IMLS. Uh, a couple people mentioned talking about Museums have stuff and they want content, trying to match content and, act, and have people have access to that. Um, I'll move forward here. Connect people to information ideas, that's our sort of our new mission statement. And I'll just mention a couple of projects we're doing now. We're working with the Minneapolis Institute of Art and the Walker Arts Center. They have a very popular website called Arts Connected, and we've just funded that website to do two primary things. One, make it open source so everybody can get to it. And then one of the things that in their focus group was education and teachers. Teachers loved having the resources, but they wanted to manage the resources themselves. They wanted to take this painting and maybe this uh, video conversation of the artist about that painting and these paintings and create their own lessons plans to meet their, own, their state standards, where a lot of times museums were creating, putting the content up and then creating the lesson plan and curriculum for them. So this Art Connected website we're funding so teachers can gather their own resources. And I think that ties in with a lot of what we've heard here. Also, I think our friends at Michigan State have a current project with some video conferencing. I don't know if it's out of your office or in another office. Video conferencing with schools connecting how students can learn through video conferencing. I think that ties in very nicely. Another project we're doing is uh, down at George Mason in their new, me new media center. Uh, they've take, they've working with the Smithsonian. And they've taken six objects of national prominence. Uh, for example, Thomas Jefferson's desk, the shorthanded hoe for Cesar Chavez, and uh, the lunch counter at Woolworths are three of the first three coming out. And they've created a lesson plan around those particular objects and then have created information and text so local historic sites can log in, use that national object, and then create a website and a lesson plan. And they give them the instructions to do that and incorporate that national object with their local history. And then they're also doing online, I think through both uh, website transmission and video conferencing, with uh, specific historians from the Smithsonian talking about those particular objects. And then the historic societies are able to create their own lesson plans with the local schools that tie into their local history. 
I think those are some projects and some areas where we're interested in. So I think we're, IMLS is really on the same wavelength of everybody here of trying to get that access. Trying to, the digital, digital divide is not just who has computers and who doesn't have computers. It's the type of access and the ability to use that. And I think all these projects sort of tie that in. And that's what everyone's talking about here in this particular conference. We're trying to tie all that information together. So everybody in the 122,000 libraries and who use the 17,000, 500,000 museums, if you believe all those numbers to be accurate, uh, occur. And we do grant making, convening research. Our primary eligible applicants are museums, libraries, and on certain programs, institutes of higher education are eligible to apply. And I'll touch on that in a minute. I've provided a list of all our programs, but I'm just going to focus on one program for museums. Uh, which is our Museums for America. Only museums are eligible for this program, but the goal of this program is to fund something that's specific to that institution's strategic plan or long-range goal. A lot of times it is these digital video type projects. So here's an opportunity if you want to work with the museum, engage them, remind them of this Museums for America program and that can provide some funding for that. Unfortunately, the cap for that is $150,000 with a one-to-one -one match. We do have a conservation program where institutions, museums, again, can apply to do conservation work if it's a priority within their institution, and that certainly includes all the digital activities that we've been talking about. The key project and the projects I talked about in the beginning here all came from our National Leadership Grant Program. Both museums and libraries are eligible for this program. Uh, in total, there's around $21, 22000000 million available for this program. Both museums and libraries are eligible, and this is the key program also that institutes of a higher education are eligible to apply for and receive funding. Grants in this program are up to $1 million. Generally, if your request is over $250,000, there's a one-to-one -one match, except for research projects, we don't require a match. So all that's a little complicated. I won't get into that right now. We do, as you can see on the screen, there are four particular categories. And certainly many of the projects we talked about here can apply to multiple categories. Building digital resources isn't so much putting stuff online or creating the resources. It's sort of, all right, I have all this stuff up. I have all this stuff available. What do I do with it? How can I make best use of it? And that's where this partnerships and these other activities come on. For example, the George Mason project I talked about and the video housing project in Michigan State are all building digital resource categories. They already have this stuff, but they're trying to find better ways that people can access it and have more uses for more types of people. In uh, the third category, research and demonstration, that's certainly one of the key categories where we could see some of these partnerships of where, uh, for example, the, the center here at Columbia is interested in some of the preservation, some of the collaborations. You can partner with libraries and partner with museums and see how you can get some commonalities for preservation activities or the interoperability of different systems can come together. And we've just started this first year collaborative planning grant. Since these are million dollar grants oftentimes or multiple hundreds of thousands, sometimes you need some resources to put together a competitive application to do some of the basic work of assessing the need and determining what the national impact is. So we do have collaborative planning grants and those for, are for $30,000. I know I'm running through this quick, but I just want these to get this all in the back of your mind and hopefully you'll come back and look it up when you have an idea. Library, I provide a list of programs here. Let me go back to the state library agencies. Part of the funding at IMLS is block grants to the states to the state library agencies. And then each state gets an X amount of dollars primarily based on population through a formula of funding. And the state library associations 
make determination how that money goes out. But man, the state library associations do areas in preservation, do areas in video, do areas in partnership for the library. So again, it's another opportunity to think of when you're thinking of projects and want to partner with other people that this is an opportunity to receive some funding. We go through grants.gov, just like NEH does, so I need to remind you of that particular procedure, which can be entertaining at times. <laughs> One thing we are, our director is particularly interested in conservation. Uh, the primary focus is uh, objects at this point, but certainly the Born Digital has a key. Uh, in that first bullet, I want to remind people to go to Heritage Preservation. We funded, I think, with NEH and NEH also provided the Heritage, Heritage Health Index, which talked about some of the dire straits some of our collections are in and that digital activities were certainly included in that. And so in response to that, IMLS is, is doing a connecting to collections, a call to action. Uh, we're having a summit at the end of June. Uh, the invitees have already been determined. We're inviting museum and library personnel and funding them to come to representatives from each state as well as particular scholars and advocates in those particular fields. But the important thing is we're also doing four regional forums across the country uh, within the next two years after that. That will touch on a variety of topics that will be one in response to the issues that come up at the forum at the initial National Conservation Summit then also be regionally directed uh, topics that are relevant to those particular areas. So again, there's an area where we certainly expect, certainly at the regional summits, regional forums to talk more about the preservation of digital activities. And we're also going to provide statewide planning grants so individual states can do some planning for activities they'd like to do in the conservation area. So again, that's a, all these, you hear a lot about the content being created at this meeting, all the, all the um, great media that's being developed, but at one point there's a little touch on, well, we have sort of the two-inch tapes, we have the DVDs, what's it going to be next and how do we save it and how do we then, it all gets back to access, how is everybody going to access this information maybe next year or two years from now, or how do you get to that information from three or four years ago, I think we heard about it in the, um, both the public broadcasting archive projects and certainly the British archive <coughs> projects of accessing that old technology has been the best word, but that's more difficult. The other thing I want to call your attention to is a free conference. It's actually very much like this. We call it WebWise, where museums and libraries come together, and a lot of it's best practices. We have sessions where you hear what's going on, hear what projects are going, and we also try and have some key speakers uh, to talk about what's going on in the digital and technology world to both museums and libraries. Uh, it's a free conference. It's uh, first come, first serve, up to 350 people. This year we filled it in two weeks. Uh, it is generally held in end of February, early March. Uh, this one, it was in D.C. this past year. Next year it will be out of D.C. We are currently uh, have an RFP out to fill that. But uh, keep track of that. I think many of you would find that very interesting. Which leads me, how do you keep track of stuff at IMLS? One way is we have an email newsletter called Primary Source. comes out monthly, tracks our grant programs, highlights projects, highlights issues at IMLS that we're touching on, and also informs you of conferences and the like. I have my contact information. I have my web address there. Back at the table, uh, right where you are, I have a where you got your uh, badges and folders. I have a copy of the slides if you want to pick those up. There's a little brochure about our 2008 programs. If you're tired of, of uh, trying to look stuff up, you can have this, the printed versions. And our website's very easy, imls.gov. Thank you very much. Um, my name's Brian Newman. I'm with Renew Media. And you probably don't know our name because it was just 
a few months ago that we were called National Video Resources. Um, and we changed our name recently to Renew Media. And we, were an we are an organization founded by the Rockefeller Foundation to help filmmakers get their films funded and to distribute them to as wide an audience as possible. How many of you in the audience are filmmakers or producers or sometimes <laughs> filmmakers? Okay, so a few. We're your best friend in a, in a sense because we have money and solutions for getting your film out there. Um, and we were not specifically set up in any way to address open content. However, it's something we've been thinking a lot about lately. Um, and I recently went down um, to the Hewlett Conference at Rice University on open educational resources. And one of the things I learned there, and that I've learned here, not from these particular speakers, is that um, this movement has a real need for learning storytelling um, and needs to learn um, how to tell its dreams and its vision and its success stories better to get more people interested in this area. And the area I'm in, in film and video, is the land of probably too many stories. Um, not just in terms of narratives and documentaries, but also a lot of false stories and a lot of false stories of success. And so I want to talk about a little bit about some realities um, in the video marketplace and then talk about three intervent interventions that we've done along this area in terms of financing, uh, one of which at the end is sufficiently heretical enough, I think, for this audience that it should at least get everyone's attention away from the computers for a few moments. Um, how many of you have uh, heard of the film um, Super Size Me by Morgan Spurlock? So most, I think everyone almost here has heard about it. And you've probably seen it, you probably saw it on DVD, you saw that his box office was several million dollars. Um, the reality of that film, though, if you talk to Morgan, is he didn't make a dime from that film. Um, now, he now has a TV contract and a TV show, and he's make, making his next film, um, and he's produced a film called What Would Jesus Do? Um, so he's gotten some success out of it, but the reality behind the story is that he didn't make a dime. He's now starting to see a trickling in of some money from the DVD sales. Um, but there's, uh, what I'll get to here in a moment a little bit more is, there's a lot of misinformation about the possibilities um, in narrative and documentary film and the success behind them and not enough true stories and true numbers. Um, we hear a lot of them because we run a program called the Media Arts Fellowships where we give out one million annually to filmmakers in the United States and Mexico as well as new media artists. And so we hear a lot of their um, gripe stories about what they do not make with their productions. Um, and I think that it's uh, pretty safe to say that we know artists pretty well because over 20 years we've funded over 500 artists to the tune of about $12 million. And in addition, um, I know uh, David and the NEH pretty well because we do programs where we take films out and we've done a lot of them to public libraries and museums and other nonprofits around the country where we work with NEH funding often to curate series around a certain topic like human rights or we just had a series called Looking at Jazz that went to several places around the country with NEH support. Um, so we also know about reaching audiences with, this, with these projects. Um, one of the things that we've learned about with artists is that, um, and, I, and again, I should point out, we are not about open content. We don't require that with our grants right now, although it's something we every now and then talk about. Um, but we've learned a lot from our artists, and one is that they want the freedom to create their vision. And on top of that, and very close second, they hope to make a living from what they're doing. However, most of them don't. And while you would think that would lead them to think about alternate strategies, um, you know, Morgan Spurlock, if you asked him, will you give your film away for free in an open content system of any end of the spectrum, 
His answer would be no. He wants to make sales of that film. And that's a reality that we have to face with a lot of content. The other, th and we think that's fair enough. Artists should be able to make some kind of living from their, from their work. Um, and we also feel that there's a myth going around that nowadays you can just do anything you want. There's, the cameras are so cheap. You can distribute it so cheaply through YouTube. And while I watch user-generated content, quote unquote, we call them filmmakers, um, as much as everyone else does, the reality is that quality educational content and quality important artistic works often still take a lot of money to fund. Most of the artists that we fund are never spending less than $200,000 on their production and often they're hovering around $2 million for both documentaries and fiction films. It's still expensive. And while there are new resources to get your films out there to a public, the most successful video on Rever, which is one of the few places that pays people for their user-generated content videos, the most successful one, the Coke um, Mentos video, I think everyone's probably seen that, where they put the Mentos in the Coke and it sprays everywhere. Um, I think that's now made maybe $30,000 at his payback from Rever, and that's the most successful story they have. So we don't necessarily consider that a success ourselves. Um, some other realities out there is, and this is very obvious, it's an underfunded, overproduced field. Um, and that's probably because everyone thinks they'll be discovered and they'll become the next Morgan Spurlock, who they've heard made a lot of money, but he didn't. Um, and the other thing we've learned a lot about from our filmmakers is they don't think about distribution or the educational use of their film in particular. And if they do, they don't do it until the film's already done, they don't have the money for it, and they're at the point where they'll just take any offer that any distributor comes to with them to get their film out to a wider public, and they don't really think in advance of the possibilities of their film and alternate ways of getting it out there. And one of the reasons is there's no real numbers out there available that tell you this is how little Morgan Spurlock made on his film. You go to Variety.com even, all you can get is a box office report. Well, the box office is nothing. It's a marketing campaign for the DVD sales. So that tells you nothing about the reality of what someone makes on their film. And so there's a real need out there for that. Some other realities we need to know about the the um, media artists and open content and the, and the possibilities are that while it would be great, um, you know, the idea of having everything accessible, our, our world's, world's knowledge accessible, free and open to the world, especially to educational, one of the places where filmmakers do make money is in sales to the educational marketplace, often at $300 a pop for a videotape, um, not even a DVD. And while that can seem ridiculous, it's a reality in the marketplace that we need to think of and address and thinking about open content. Most of the filmmakers we talk to are not only not open to um, alternate licensing or the possibilities of things like Creative Commons and other open content movements, they're not even aware they exist. Um, as a whole, the majority of our artists that we support and that we know um, know what they've read in Variety and they don't know much about these alternate um, options. And because no one has given them a viable model which could pay them a living for their work, they often are very resistant to the notion. And if someone can give them that possibility, that, that might work. And we started to sell some stories ourselves that help there. And I'll talk about those real quickly now. And I want to talk about two interventions uh, first that we've had. And one is that um, in talking to Peter Kaufman and others, actually, we started thinking about, and, I, and actually talking to Kara Mertes, who used to be the head of uh, POV on PBS, and she's now at the Sundance Documentary Institute. Um, we started asking the question, well, what would some other models be for this? Is there a way that perhaps 
we could think about funding media artists up front maybe a little bit more for their work, and that can guarantee that maybe they make something on their work. And what if you even let them possibly put it out in the marketplace for a limited window of time, and they could profit from that work. They could sell it to whoever the highest bidder is and hope they make money from it, whatever. But it's a stipulation of your funding. It had to revert to some other alternate licensing scheme after that window of time. Perhaps after five years, it went back into the public domain or into Creative Commons license with attribution, et cetera. Um, what would those possibilities be? And, we've, and we found in telling and asking that question that we're getting artists, especially established artists who realize they've not made a dime and they're struggling and there's no longer teaching jobs to support their careers anymore. Um, they're open to those ideas. And so we don't have a lot of money to play with. Our money uh, predominantly comes from the Rockefeller Foundation, Ford Foundation, and others, and we are a regrantor. So we can't do a lot, but we just decided to do, for our 20th anniversary this year, we decided, what if instead of hiring someone and paying the money to make a commercial about us, what if we gave the money to artists, but we sampled this idea, and what we did is we put out a call to all of our artists saying, we'll give you money up front to make a less than one minute short piece, and our only stipulation is that you have to make it under a Creative Commons sampling license. And we were amazed that we actually got a, a really good response from tons of our artists. We were able to finally select five, because of all the money we had to pay. And they ranged from um, emerging to established artists, very diverse. I actually had a website that I had emailed in to show everyone, but and, and um, for time's sake, I'll, I'll just skip it and say that we got some great works, which we premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival just a couple weeks ago. They're on our website, which is renewmedia.org. Uh, so very simple to find, and they usually pop up right on the first page as an advertisement. You can click on them. We made a deal with iSpot, um, which is, I don't know if everyone knows iSpot, um, E-Y-E-Spot.com. It's an online website where you can uh, mix and mash video. They have a very simple editor. Very, you know, it's almost like an iMovie that's, um, you can load your content, you can mix it with other people's content, you can mix it with Creative Commons songs and spit it back out to your cell phone if you want. And we've got all those works up there, and we're now encouraging the general public to take those same works, mix them, mash them up, and we have a contest where those same original five artists will decide who wins it. And we actually don't know what the prize will be yet, but we're hoping that a company will give us something to give away. Um, the second intervention, which is very simple to describe, is, um, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of, of false stories, but not a lot of reality. Um, so we have contracted with uh, Peter Kaufman and Intelligent Television here um, through a MacArthur-funded study to study the economics of distribution uh, with the goal, we hope, we'll prove our theory that people aren't making money. If you look at the amount of money going into the productions and the amount of money coming back to them, there's a, a, a gross disparity. And perhaps when you have the numbers in front of you, we can start to tilt the thinking of the foundation world, other funders, public media funders as well, to, and, and the filmmakers themselves to realize, wait a minute, not just Morgan, but no one is making money. There's four or five people every year that might be making some money, and maybe that can help do something different. So those are two easy interventions that we've started, and all of those will be available on our website. So I have some proposals that I, um, I've thought about for the financing of open video that we need to think about, and then I'll go into our third intervention very quickly. One is that I hear a lot of black and white in a lot of these rooms, and I think most people here are pretty reasonable, so they, they understand this, but I think it's really important to realize that the future is not open versus paid. That's not going to ever be what the future is. It's going to be a mix of those two. 
And it's not going to be top-down versus bottom-up. There's going to be user-generated content, and there's going to be stuff that's funded by HBO and whoever else. And those two worlds are going to coexist just like every other technology. We always settle into some kind of medium. The other is that the commercial-non-commercial split is pretty much fiction. And we need to realize that most of the producers that are making stuff for educational use are also hoping to make it for commercial markets, et cetera. The other is, and this is very simple, but broadcast will not die. Um, there will be uh, hybrid models, but it's nowhere near dead. Um, the other is that neither is text. Um, I think it was back in 1990 that Gregory Ulmer first proposed the idea of electricy, um, the, the idea of the movement from morality to literacy to electricy, which is electronic-enabled thought processes, business models, everything around the idea of a mix of gaming, web, video, all coming together for a new electronic-enabled thought. And that was something he proposed back before somebody came up with the ridiculous term of Web 2.0 for what is what we envisioned the web back a long time ago. There's nothing new about, the, about what's going on on the web. This is stuff, I mean, we were supposed to right now be in virtual reality goggles talking to each other and zooming through cyberspace to pick out what we wanted, and we're still way behind. So that's the other thing is technology is slow. And so we've got to kind of use duct tape to pull together the innovative projects that we want. Um, the other thing that we think is really important to keep in mind, and, and when you're dealing in educational settings, people don't talk about it, so we, we say students, but I, I woke up one day and realized when I was reading the paper and they keep on saying that consumers keep buying that I'm a consumer. That's me as well as everyone else. And so I think we need to realize that the consumer is king and we need to focus on what the audience wants, not what we want them to want. And so what I'm kind of getting around to all of, with all of this is that we need pragmatic solutions and that nonprofit and education and philanthropy need to start thinking about pushing innovation with new ideas that are very much practical, pragmatic, and can offer new solutions for getting this content out there and that maybe combine different processes to get to where we want with open content at different varieties of the spectrum. So this is our last intervention, the one that hopefully will wake the room up a little bit, called the Reframe Project, which we have just now officially launched with support of the MacArthur Foundation and in partnership with Amazon.com. And our project's goal is in some ways much like the Google Book Project, but with the rights holders' permissions and with them actually having the chance to make money back for their works. And what we've done is we've realized there's a lot of films stuck on the shelf. There's a lot of film and analog formats and others that aren't accessible and because of rights clearance issues, et cetera. And there's a lot of filmmakers and distributors and archives, not archives as much, but definitely distributors of content that we want to use in the educational setting that right now are not open to open content models, although they may be so in the future. The other thing we realized is that when I was down at Rice University, people kept on saying very quickly, well, you know, we have to face the, the sustainability issue and the rights issues, and then they would move on to some other topic because they didn't want to talk about those two because they didn't have an answer for any of them. So we think we've built with this project, which I'll go through, something that could potentially be a sustainable solution to get this content out there and that could move into open content solutions. So what we've done is we have partnered with Amazon, Custom Flicks, and Unbox, two of their divisions. And we are going out to archives, distributors, filmmakers with a large body of content, museums, libraries, and we are going to be offering to digitize their entire libraries for free on video for free, on film at cost. And when I say at cost, we have worked with a lab, and this is not a uh, less than quality job. We're working with an established laboratory, 
and on average it'll cost about $400 for 90 minutes of 16 millimeter or 35 millimeter with sound. We can also do Super 8, Regular 8, all kinds of formats for that are cheaper. That's about $400. However, we do it on a deferred basis so you can start making money back from that content sale and start paying off the cost of that digitization and we hope to be moving to where film will be free as well. Um, the deal that we have made with Amazon is non-exclusive and that's a key thing to keep understanding throughout this entire thing. So while we will help you digitize your works and, and make them for sale, which I'll talk about in a second, all of this is non-exclusive. So if you were, for example, to come to us and say, I want to work with a different lab and then put my stuff in your system, we'll work with you on that basis as well. If you want to, when we digitize your works, by the way, we will give you back at the beginning um, a digital uh, copy of your work as a DVD master. And if that's not good enough quality for you, we can offer almost any item you want, um, a hard drive, you know, what you need for iTunes, and we'll give it to you on a non-exclusive basis. And you can take that content and make it available for free on an open content system. Or you could make it available for sale through iTunes. We don't care. We're definitely going on the long tail model of realizing if it's in our system, we don't care where else it exists. Um, one of the things that we are, and we're going to help people deliver it through three methods. Um, DVD on demand. And we think this is a crucial part of the project that makes it different than what other people are doing. You, every single day, I think today, two more places launch that are offering digital downloads. And the reality is that's, that's great, but no one's using it. Um, it's a very small marketplace. People still want something they can get onto their TV, and people still want DVD at this time. So we're offering DVD on demand. No inventory is needed, so you don't have to print a thousand copy run or something like that. Uh, we're also offering digital download to own or to rent at prices set by the rights holder and at favorable splits to the rights holder and at um, variable times of rental. So for example, a university could choose to download a digital copy to their server and show it in their classroom and have it expire after they've shown it once or after an entire semester, or they could give logins for their students, which could last for an entire semester or for an entire year, or you could purchase the copy in perpetuity. Um, we can set all of those based on what the rights holder wants to do and what the universities want to do. And um, again, all of these options are opt-in. So if you want to do DVD on demand but not digital download, uh, you can opt to do that. All of them are opt-in uh, processes. And the last thing where it says ingest on demand here um, is not the best solution, but if you've got a large body of film content and you don't have the money for the digitization and we haven't been able to help you raise a grant for it, uh, we can do a project called ingest on demand where we put all of your metadata into the system. And working with Amazon, they have some algorithm that I don't even understand that says after four people or whatever look at it, they're confident it's going to sell enough that they'll go ahead and ingest it and digitize it and cover all the costs. So we can do things like that as well. Um, we are also simultaneously, because getting it up on Amazon, big deal, who's going to find it, we're building a separate website, the Reframe website, that is an educational marketplace-focused website. Um, and if you imagine all of the social networking that's out there on Facebook and everything else, it'll be part of our website, but geared towards professors, scholars, and other educators who want to find content and get it out to their students and others. They can recommend things to each other. If you're a professor of film studies in Oklahoma, you could look at what David Boardwell was teaching in his class at University of Madison, Wisconsin. Order the same thing for your students. Put it on your syllabus. They could find the work, download it themselves, recommend it to their mom, whatever they want to do. Um, it's branded by the catalog holder, so whether it's a filmmaker or a distributor or an archive. 
um, and it's very participatory, and we're using Amazon's recommender systems. There's a lot in this project, but I'm going to go quickly, and you guys can ask questions later. Here's a little schematic made by someone who um, thinks right to left instead of left to right, so uh, you have to look at it somewhat in reverse. Um, but the idea is that the reframe project, um, any content holder can put their analog content or digital to, into us. We return a digital copy to them on a non-exclusive basis. They can take it out into any other marketplace they want to. We can help them make it available for DVD on demand, digital download or rental. It's a non-exclusive multiple marketplace option as well where we will go out and on behalf of thousands of hours of content, we're hoping to have 10,000 titles in this system within one year's time. And we're confident we can do that based on conversations we've already had with some content holders. Because of that, we'll be able to um, negotiate better splits for them with places like iTunes, et cetera. And then the last thing is, and this is what becomes important to this meeting is, because it's non-exclusive, if people want to make their content available on a free basis on any kind of range of open content, if they want to make it available for free in certain settings and fee in others, we can help them do that through our website. And then the last thing is, because this is not something that's easy to do, um, from the beginning, we realized we have to address all of the different problems here. So we are doing a series of convenings around particular solutions to certain problems, such as public media, such as archival issues, when, you, when your film can't even be digitized because it's not in a shape to be done so, how do we address that? Our hope is to be doing joint large grants to, br to bring out to archives where we can say this is an important body of work that needs to be preserved and kept in an analog format, yet we can put it in the system and make it sustainable. And um, last, we will also be doing a lot of work around rights issues, which will be a huge stumbling block for a lot of this work. Um, and most of it will become bigger than what we can solve, but we're hoping it can be a nexus uh, where people can gather to think about these issues and try to address them, and the people who are better at it than us, like public knowledge, et cetera, can, can address those issues. And those are, uh, and the last thing is, again, we think that this could be a sustainable way to work towards open content because we've built what we've termed and coined a with-profit solution, not non-profit, not for-profit, but the combination of the two that could allow for both open and paid content and potentially become a sustainable place to have both. And thank you. <laughs>